Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd love you to keep your place there uh, with the text that has just been read to us from Matthew 6, 16 through 18. I need to be honest before we get into this text. I have uh, served uh, and, and attended a number of churches since I came to Christ when I was uh, six or seven years old. And in none of the churches that I attended or have been part of in North America, it is my contention that none of those churches had a significant culture of fasting. It's only when I went overseas to uh, be in a church in Africa where uh, the, the... a hundred of the 150 people who came to church were from Africa, where I was confronted with a, a, a much bigger culture of fasting. And uh, many of those university students pointed that out often. Why don't you all come to the fast, you Americans, you Europeans? So this is one of the problems with expository preaching. When you work through a longer text, you get to a passage that as a preacher, you're just no good at. I look at this text and I say, well, in one sense, I don't think I've ever violated uh, letting the world know that I'm fasting. (laughs) Because I've never really fasted all that much. And so... I just, in honesty, in honesty and humility, I want to say this passage has really convicted me. And I suspect for a number of you, it will do the same. Now, I suspect there's a, no, there's a few of us in here who probably online, you know, maybe you're, you're really, you, fasting's a regular part of your spiritual disciplines. We probably need to learn from you. And I sort of apologize to them for my elementary (laughs) presentation this morning. But what I want to challenge us as we look at this important text is to challenge all of us to start taking some steps in using the spiritual discipline of fasting appropriately, biblically, in grace as a way to obey God's word, but as a way as well to commune with God at a deeper level. I don't want this to be onerous. I don't want this to be, uh, you know, we're not instituting some kind of a, a fasting plan, you know. But I think all of us would do well to listen to the words of Jesus here and to take some steps in this area. And so that's what I want to encourage us to do. Now, one of the other problems with this text is not simply that the guy preaching it to, to hasn't really obeyed this text all that much, but, but the other problem with the text is it presupposes a culture of fasting, okay? It, you have to realize in, in, at this time, as Jesus presented the Sermon on the Mount, people were, many people were fasting twice a week. The spiritual leaders, the Pharisees, were doing that. Fasting was a part of the culture, so since we are so removed from that culture of fasting, sometimes these words, it, 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 it speaks well, I think, to a culture of fasting, but to a culture that doesn't fast all that much, these, these words are not necessarily complete. And so I'm going to have to go to other portions of the scripture to fill in some of the missing gaps 
because I don't think we all have a culture of fasting. It's interesting about fasting. There's probably more fasting going on in America right today, but it has nothing to do with spiritual issues. It all has to do with losing weight, cleansing yourself, etc. So we fast, but we're far removed from the fasting that Jesus is recommending. So what I want us to do this morning is to ask and answer five important questions about fasting. They come out of this text. I'm just going to have to fill it in a little bit, but let's dive in. The first question is this. Should believers today engage in fasting? If you look at various presentations and even recent books, there are some believers who say, no, fasting was more for the Old Testament believer. Now that Jesus has come, there's not really a need to fast in the way that Old Testament believers did. These writers often point out that there's not really a lot of verses that, that, that command you to fast in the New Testament. Maybe not any. And so they wonder if maybe this was something that anticipated Jesus' coming, but now that he's here, we don't fast. Well, when you look at the text, that's hard to defend because verse 16 says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Jesus is anticipating that we would fast, that the followers of Jesus listening to this sermon, when you fast, and he's going to give some instructions about that fasting, he assumes that fasting will be part of a follower of Jesus' basic spiritual disciplines, part of a suite of disciplines that we need to engage in. So I think, yes, we are supposed to fast. I mean, we need to look at one other passage in Matthew that will be very helpful. Turn to, to turn, that'll be very helpful. Turn to Matthew 9 verses 14 and 15 to see Jesus talking about fasting in a little bit more detail that I think reinforces the idea that as followers of Jesus, we ought to be engaged in the spiritual discipline of fasting. In verse 14 of of Matthew 9, the disciples of John, these would have been the disciples of John the Baptist, came to Jesus and they said, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. What Jesus seems to be saying to them, okay, we're not fasting. My disciples are not fasting now. Why? Because I am the bridegroom, and I am presently with them. And when the bridegroom is present, you don't fast, you don't mourn, you celebrate. But when the bridegroom is taken away... Jesus ascended back up to heaven. He's not physically present on the earth now. Then it said, then my disciples will fast. And so I think Jesus clearly anticipates that we as the followers of Jesus would engage in fasting. Christ has ascended. He's gone. He's not physically present. Now he's spiritually present with us through the power of the Holy Spirit, but he is not physically here and we await going to him and for him coming back to earth and reforming the earth and rejuvenating the earth and restoring and redeeming the earth. And so now is a time for fasting. It's an appropriate spiritual discipline for the followers of Jesus. That's the first question. Should believers today engage in fasting? Absolutely. Question number two, why do people fast in the Bible? It's a good question. There's all kinds of things. I'm not, I won't have time to deal with all of the, the uh, passages on fasting. I think I'm going to put together a little blog this week that will guide you to all of those passages or to a number of them so you can read for yourself. 
But let's take a look here on uh, and, and why do people fast in the Bible. I want to give a macro vision. I want to give a narrower vision and then back to a macro vision to help us understand why did people fast in the Bible. So let me give a macro picture from the text itself. Jesus says, when you fast, again, assuming we will, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. What Jesus is getting at is when you fast, you're not supposed to disfigure your face. You're not supposed to, you know, make yourself look as if you are in the process of a fast. You're not supposed to advertise that you're fasting and run around glooming. You don't put it on Facebook. I'm in day three of my fast. Tell me about yours. No. He says, truly, they have their reward. In other words, if you want to fast, and that's how you're going to approach it, that it's not really about you and God communing with God. It's about you letting people know how spiritual you are. Well, that's your reward. You want to be seen by people? Well, that will be your reward. Jesus goes on to say, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. In other words, don't act like you're in the middle of a fast. It's interesting, anoint your head would often be a symbol of joy. Be joyful. Wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The sense here from just this text is that fasting is all about you and God. It's not about other people seeing it. No, absolutely not. It's you communing with God himself. It's you in secret, so to speak, you and God spending extra time together when you have deprived yourself of food, and that's sort of the technical definition of fasting, you have deprived yourself of, the, of that good gift that God gives you in order to spend time with God himself. It's all about God. Fasting is before God. It's to God. It's about God. And not about your reputation as some spiritual giant of spiritual discipline. In a very real sense, I think what fasting gets at is food is a good gift given to us by God. When you deprive yourself of that good gift for a time and spend it thinking about God, praying to God, contemplating him and his purposes, spending that time with God rather than the gift that God gives, what you're doing is, is reminding yourself exactly what Jesus reminded us when he was fasting. Remember, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before he began his ministry. Right after his baptism, he's in the desert for 40 days. And while there, Satan tempts him and what does he say? Well, in one of the temptations, you know, Satan's trying to get him to take these rocks and turn them into bread. And what does Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What is Jesus communicating? I think he's communicating what fasting is all about. Fasting removes a good gift, a necessary thing for us to remind us that there are some things that that are far more important even than food that sustains us. It's God himself who sustains us. What fasting is about is, is getting our eyes off of the good gifts that he gives us and getting our eyes on him plus nothing. We all have a massive tendency to love God and serve God and be excited and passionate about God as long as God is showering us with enough good gifts to make us feel good about him. 
And when you take a, a, a legitimate gift of God food and you refrain from it, you deprive yourself for a period of time and you focus only on him, you remind yourself of what is vitally important. If all you had was God plus nothing, if all you had was God and, and all of the other blessings in life were being taken away right and left, you could still be just as joyful, just as content, just as purposeful, just as at peace if you have God plus nothing else because he's everything. It's the message of Ecclesiastes. And so what fasting does is force us through an intentional choice on our part to refrain from a good gift of God and focus on him, him alone. That's why people fasted. Now let me give you just a, a couple of passages of uh, a narrower focus. If you go back in the Pentateuch, you'll see that the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, was called to fast on the Day of Atonement. That was prescribed. That's directed. This was a time when the nation would, would, would uh, have the atonement, as the high priest would, would go into the Holy of Holies and put the blood there on uh, at, at, at the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. It's a way of atoning for the sins of the nation. All of that, of course, is looking to Jesus, the, 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 the shed blood from that Lamb of God, always looking to Jesus. But when the nation was contemplating their need for atonement and the fact that God had to provide a substitute in their place, the people of God were called to fast. You'll see throughout the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 7, you can look at that this afternoon, verses 1 through 6, Samuel caused the entire nation the, the entire people of God uh, to a fast. Why? Because they have fallen into idolatry. They are worshiping other gods. And he's calling them to a time of fasting, to do without food, to refocus on God, to realign their lives with him, and to let God do business with them in repentance and confession of sin, and to restore their intimacy with God. And the fasting was part of the discipline to drive them to do that. You turn to Acts 13. It's another illustration, a New Testament illustration of fasting, which is pretty interesting. This is now uh, Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. This is now at the church at Antioch. This has now become the church has moved out from Jerusalem uh, and has moved into Antioch, and a number of key leaders are in Antioch. The church seems to be flourishing there, and here's what is described. In Acts 13, 1 through 3, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. It is interesting to see this group of multi-ethnic church leaders in Antioch praying and fasting and in the middle of that prayer and fast the Holy Spirit tells them we're not told how but directs them to set their hands on two of them and send them out on a missionary journey 
Now, we're not told exactly what they all prayed about and fasted about, but it's, it, I don't think it's too much of a conjecture to, to surmise that as this church in Antioch and as these leaders were meeting together, praying and fasting, they may very well have been contemplating how do we fulfill the commission that Jesus gave us when he said, you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the uttermost part of the world. I don't think that's crazy because in the context, that's exactly the answer to prayer that they get. Put your hands on two of the, your best leaders and send them off. And of course, this is foundational to over the next 350 years, that missionary journey will multiply and multiply and take over into most of the Roman Empire. Massive bringing to, to Christ. And so what you see here in this fasting is these leaders are contemplating, how do we fulfill your plan, God? How do we accomplish your will, God? How do we d do what needs to be done to see that more people come to know who you are and put their faith and confidence in Christ alone? That's sort of the narrow focus. I'll send you a out on a blog this week, all, a lot of other passages where people were praying and fasting for different things. But let's go back to Matthew 6. Once more, get a little bit of a wider lens here. Fasting is all about God. It's for him. It's communing with him. It's setting aside the gifts that he gives us so that we can focus on God plus nothing else. We see that the children of Israel fasted and prayed when they were contemplating God's forgiveness of them, their need for forgiveness, their need for repentance. We see the early church leaders meeting together to think about how God would want them to fulfill God's worldwide mission. And in the context of the text on fasting, verses 16, 17, and 18 that we're looking at, if you just go up just a little bit to the Lord's Prayer, you see some other big picture items for why you would fast. Notice the prayers that Jesus instructs his disciples to pray like. The first prayer request, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That prayer request is about the that the name of God, the name of Father God, would be honored in a deeper and wider way in the world. That's what the prayer is about. And it says, thy your kingdom come. This idea, and I think there's sort of two issues here. On the one hand, the prayer is about we want to see, Lord, more people under your authority. Where God's rule and reign, where Jesus' rule and reign is being activated right now on the earth. But it's also looking to the future. Recognizing that in the future, because of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we know Jesus is coming back and he's going to put the world right. And we long for that and we pray for that. And then it says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer that what God wants, what he desires, what he commands, what his word directs is being done today even. Today it's being done the way it's done in heaven. When God speaks in heaven, everybody, everybody you know, moves around and does what he says. Right? The last person who didn't do that doesn't live there anymore. Right? Satan. So when you see this in context of fasting, it seems like what, what Jesus is arguing for, what fasting has always been about, since it's about God, it's about us looking at our own lives, 
looking at the world and its brokenness, looking at our lives and our brokenness. And because we know we're not the people we ought to be and we know that God's will is not being done today as it ought to be, we don't see more and more things being ruled and, and ordered by God himself. We, 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 we fail to see the beauty of the future kingdom coming. We want to see God's name hallowed and honored more and more. That is a cause, a reason to spend time depriving ourselves of God's good gifts in order to focus on God plus nothing so that we can reorient ourselves around his priorities, his kingdom, his name being hallowed. I think you see that in this text because what Jesus is so concerned about, it's so easy for us to turn, turn fasting into something that's about us. It's reading this. Oh, all these quotes. Jonathan Edwards talked a lot about Fasting. Here's what he said, so convicting to me as a pastor. He said, the state of the times, okay, he's writing back, you know, in the 1700s, which it, it, seemed, it, can't, it feels like it couldn't be worse than it is today, but maybe it was just as bad, I don't know. The state of the times extremely requires a fullness of the divine spirit in ministers. And we ought to give ourselves no rest till we have obtained it. And in order to do this, I should think ministers above all persons ought to be much in secret prayer and fasting and also much in prayer and fasting with one another. It seems to me it would be becoming the circumstances of the present day if ministers in a neighborhood would often meet together and spend days in fasting and fervent prayer among themselves, earnestly seeking for those extraordinary supplies of divine grace from heaven that we need at this day. Oh. I don't even know all of the ministers in this area. Strike one. When I do meet with the ministers, we don't fast, we eat lunch. Sometimes with food that we probably shouldn't even be partaking of, okay? You see, what fasting does, it gets our eyes off ourselves. It gets us our eyes off the gifts that we so often demand that God give us all the time and gets our eyes focused on him. What are his priorities? What's his agenda? What is he up to? And how does he want me to participate in this? How does he want me to honor the name of God more effectively? How does he want me to organize my life more consistently around what he says? How am I supposed to, to conform to the will of God more completely and comprehensively? That's what fasting is all about. Now, a third question. What are the dangers of fasting? Okay. Well, just in the text, we can turn any good thing, even a spiritual discipline, and make it about us. Oh, well, we're amazing. We can do this all the time. And we're so satisfied that we're fasting, and we're so uh, grateful that we're fasting. Don't forget... Okay, this will disabuse you of that. Don't forget that Jesus tells this little story, right, of the Pharisee and the publican. You remember the Pharisee comes into the temple and he says, oh Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there. 
And then he goes on to a list of things he does. And one of the things he mentions, I'm not like him. I fast twice a day. And then you've got the tax collector over here. He can't even look up to heaven. He bows his head and beats his breast and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what does Jesus say? The tax collector goes home right before God. The Pharisee doesn't. So another danger of fasting is you think somehow you're meriting God's acceptance because you fast. Or even worse, you think that because you fast, God's going to give you whatever you're praying about, whatever the broken piece of the universe you're giving over to him. You think, well, I fasted. He's got to do it. That's not how it works. I'm sorry. He will do what he wants to do in his time. He's God. You're not. I'm not. And if you want another little scary passage to read this afternoon, read Isaiah 58. Don't have time to look at it. Isaiah 58. It's the children of Israel. The God's people are fasting. They really are. Okay, so they're one step ahead of me. So I mean, like, okay, well, okay, they're fasting. But then God says, you know, you fast, you get up from your fast, you leave your fast, and then what do you do? You harm the poor. You oppress the poor. You're not kind. You're oppressing. You, you don't feed the hungry. So fasting can't, you can't look at fasting as like, okay, I know I'm living really badly in these areas, but at least I'm going to fast and that'll take care. No, no, no. Fasting is about God, for God, for his agenda, for his purposes, for you to commune with God. And if you think for one minute that that's going to get you right with God, you have missed the whole teaching of Jesus. The only way we get right with God is through the grace of Jesus Christ who gives you something that you can't work for or earn. He gives you forgiveness of sins because of what he did, not what you did. So we can't turn fasting and make it about ourselves or make it about manipulating God or making it about some kind of bargaining thing we're doing with God. None of that is what Jesus is talking about now. Question number four. What if I can't fast? So, If you can't fast, and so I want to be very clear. There are some of you, because you have a medical condition, you should not fast from food, okay? So please don't do that, okay? If you have an infant child, I don't have them fast for 40 days, okay? No, okay? And if you fast in spite of your doctor's recommendation that you not, I will still come and visit you in the hospital, but I will be less caring for you in that moment. So some of you can't because of a medical condition, because you've got an issue that uh, is, is um, you know, you, you just can't. I, I would say don't, but I would say by application that the principle of fasting could still be applied to your life by taking any of God's good gifts and setting them aside for a while and give to God. Now, now, again, it's, it's something good. It's something appropriate. You, you can't say to, 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 to me, I'm, good, I'm not going to gossip tonight, and, and then I will spend with God. No. Something good. It's a good gift, and, and you, you say no to that so that you commune with God, so that you focus on him, so that you begin to understand that you can have joy, peace, purpose in him, even if none of the other gifts that you have uh, received in the past are happening today. So if you need to move away from food in terms of a fast, there's other options for you.
last question, just briefly. This is a question I was often asked in the office this week. Um, there was some, uh, there was some cl- complaining in the office. Why are you preaching on fasting during Christmas? Couldn't you think about Jesus a little bit, the birth of Jesus? Well, how does this relate to fasting? Uh, how does this relate to Christmas? Well, it does, actually. Turn to Luke 2. As we wrap up here, Luke 2. This is uh, you know, part of the birth narratives of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is now uh, eight days old. He's presented at the temple. Okay, there are two elderly godly people that run into Jesus. Uh, one is Simeon. There's a larger section of scripture about him, but there's a woman named Anna, and we pick that story up in verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from, which, from when she was a virgin, and as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Can you think about this? This is a woman who was widowed after seven years of marriage. She's now 84. She has spent decades going to the temple. What is she doing? Praying and fasting. And of course, what happens when she connects with Jesus? Well, she, she encourages everyone, and she's, what is she fixated about? She's fixated about the waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, who has now come, Jesus, the Messiah. This woman was going to the temple day in and day out and spending a fair amount of time fasting, depriving herself of a good gift from God so that she could have all that God would want. She communed with God. She was fixated on what God needed to do to bring his kingdom. She was familiar with the Old Testament where it talks about the future kingdom. She knew that the Messiah had to come. She knew the state that Israel was in. She knew Israel's history, one idolatrous catastrophe after another. She knew the state of God's people people in Israel under the rule and reign of Rome, spiritually apathetic. And there she was, fasting and praying. What is she fasting about? Herself? Her widowhood? I mean, she's, she's focused on who? The coming Messiah. She is calling out to God. She's fasting. She's, she's fixated on this issue that the, that the redemption of Jerusalem would come. And she sees that little baby. The culmination of all of her hopes and dreams as she prayed and fasted. Now there's a huge difference between Anna and us. Do you not get this? Anna is in a broken world, yes, like we are, certainly. She's in a broken world looking to Jesus, to the Messiah to come the first time. When you fast, when I fast, (laughs) maybe someday, right? When we fast, we're not simply waiting in a dark world with waiting for the Messiah. We already know the Messiah has come. Unlike Anna, we can look back and see that the Messiah has come. Sin, death, brokenness, the power of Satan has all been decisively dealt with. And while there is evil in the world today, yes, there is, and it is a dark place still, we see that it has already been decisively defeated. And now we await the second coming of Jesus where he will redeem the universe and us 
And so we, unlike Anna, we have massive hope that the Messiah has already come. Sin, death, sickness, and brokenness have already been decisively defeated. And so when we fast because of the brokenness, or we fast because God's will's not being done on earth as it is in heaven, when we fast because God's rule and reign are not happening the way it ought to be in our lives, in the church, in the world, when we, when we grieve that the name of God is not hallowed and honored in more places, we know that the victory over sin brokenness and all the things we're praying about has already been decisively defeated. And so there's a sense in which I would say, when you go back to Matthew 6, you go back to Matthew 6 and he says, you know, don't, you know, make yourself out to be this suffering, fasting person, anoint yourself. Often if you anointed yourself with oil, it would be a sign of gladness, a sign of joy. He's saying, even when we fast, because of the brokenness, because of the lack of God's kingdom exhibiting what we think it ought to, the fact that people are not doing what God wills, the fact that God's name's not being hallowed, when we fast in that manner for those issues, focusing on God plus nothing else, we ought to be more joyful. Way more joyful than Anna could have been because it's all been defeated. Everything you're praying about has been decisively defeated at the cross and by the virtue of the resurrection by the virtue of the fact that Jesus has ascended and is seated at the right hand seated at the right hand of the father and of course I think if we're honest one of our big problems is because we are not like Anna fixated on the coming of Messiah or in our case the second coming of that Jesus because we are not fasting and praying about that reality Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We have lost sight of where Jesus is taking the world. We have lost sight on where our future actually is. And I think it makes us be, be very easy for us to get out of sync with what God is actually doing. And you know that's true. If I could wish one thing for a lot of you this Christmas, I would say, take a week off of the media and it's depressing drumbeat and spend time with God his purposes his future coming his kingdom his, his, his will that's going to be done on earth as in heaven on, on, on hallowing his name in your life in the life of the church and the life of the world and when we fast today, unlike Anna, because we look back and see the beauty of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension, when we fast about the brokenness of the world, our own and the churches and the world's, we should have great joy. Why? Because it has already been defeated. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, uh, I confess my own lack of fasting and I pray that you by God's grace would help me to do that and engage in that in a deeper way. I pray that each of us would take steps in that direction to fast from food or something else, one of God's good gifts and find their joy, hope, peace and purpose in God plus nothing else. I pray that we would become fixated with Christ's coming kingdom. We would be fixated with seeing his will being done on earth as it is in heaven, that we'd be fixated on seeing his name hallowed, honored, 
in our life, in the life of this church, in the life of the world. I pray, Lord, that as we engage in this discipline, we will not manipulate it and turn it into some way to manipulate you or to promote ourselves or to turn it into some legalistic way of earning your favor, Lord, or looking good to others, but that we would see it as an opportunity to get back to you and find that we don't need your good gifts to be satisfied. In you alone, we are satisfied. Help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.